BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. On this Friday morning, February 11, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable, where we look back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. It's been a week of missing documents, continuing debate over what happened on January 6th, speculation about the Supreme Court, mask mandates coming off, and continuing tensions in Ukraine. That resolution passed last weekend by the Republican National Committee, suggesting that the violence of January 6th was nothing more than legitimate legitimate political discourse, has split Republicans right down the middle. Mitch McConnell strongly disagreeing, Kevin McCarthy saying, well, sounds good to me. 15 boxes of missing presidential documents miraculously discovered at Mar-a-Lago, but now phone records from January 6th are missing. President Biden reveals he's narrowed his possible picks for the Supreme Court down to four. And the good news is we're not at war with Ukraine yet. <laughs> but don't ask about tomorrow. Well, here to wrap it, unwrap it all for us, Maya King, national political reporter for Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post and author of the newsletter, How to Read This Chart. Hey, Philip. Good morning, sir. Good to have you back. And Matt Gertz, uh, welcome back to This is Matt Gertz, not Matt Gates from Florida. No, this is Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters for America. And Matt, good to say hello to you again. Thanks for having me. Well, Washington loves nothing better than a juicy scandal. And now we've got one. Uh, I think we can call it, what, DocuGate? It's sort of three phases. First, there were the 700 pages of documents that President Trump uh, claimed, for which he claimed executive privilege. Supreme Court said, no way, you have to turn those documents over. Uh, Then we find the 15 boxes of documents that somehow went to Mar-a-Lago instead of to the National Archives. And now we've got the phone records from January 6th who, that are missing. The January 6th committee has found those phone records missing. DocuGate. Hey, Philip, is this a big deal? Uh, I think that's the key question, right? And it's it's really hard to answer for a couple of reasons. The first is that we don't really know what the scale of the documents was, right? I mean, we've heard some reports. We've heard, obviously, a a lot about the things that people are going to be familiar with, like the letters from Kim Jong-un and that map that he drew on with the Sharpie when he was trying to downplay the the hurricane. So we've heard a lot about those sorts of things. We know the Washington Post reported uh, on Thursday that there was some clearly marked as classified material in that box. But of course, Donald Trump has the authority to declassify things. And so he can say he simply declassified them before he took them with him. Like there's, there are all sorts of loopholes and legal boundaries here that, that speak to the legal aspect of whether or not it's a big deal. Is this a political big deal? 
Uh, I don't think any Trump voters are going to be are going to sour on him as a result of this. Uh, but we simply don't know. We're very we're at the starting line here, and we don't really know where this thing's going to go. Well, uh, Maya, there were some real ticking time bombs. It seems like in the seven among the seven hundred pages, the initial first phase of this scandal, if you will, right? There were um, executive orders drafted, not signed, requiring the Pentagon to seize voting machines, um, asking the Department of Homeland Security to seize voting machines. There's some pretty important stuff in here. And it sounds like there was also in the boxes in Mar-a-Lago. And that's, to me, what makes this um, such a bombshell report and what makes this so so important is that we are learning with every every new detail of exactly what happened just in this White House on January 6th, but also through um, the last, the four years of the Trump presidency, really this commitment to holding on to power at the expense of um, democratic norms, like small, lowercase d democratic norms. And I think that's really what's most problematic about this. Um, I suppose my question now is, is where, where do we go from here and what do we what do we do with this information, especially heading into an election year? Is this a mere talking point to sort of uh, galvanize Democratic voters against, you know, another sort of super important election that would be a, a vote against Trump? Or is this something that we just see pop up closer to 2024? I'm I'm kind of wondering now what what next steps look like as we continue to be presented with this pretty damning information. Well, Matt Gertz, when we know that among the 15 boxes uh, that somehow ended up at Mar-a-Lago included things that Donald Trump kind of wanted to hold on to, right? The letters, to, the love letters to Kim Jong-un, uh, the letter that personal letter he received from President Obama uh, in the Oval Office desk, which sort of indicate, Matt, doesn't it, that, that taking those boxes to Mar-a-Lago was not just careless that it could have been like deliberate on this is stuff he wanted to keep well we're gonna find out i mean the house oversight committee has already sent a letter to the national archives asking for an inventory of all the documents that were recovered from uh, mar-a-lago um so you know there's going to be a sort of discovery period here where we find out what uh the president, uh, former president, took with him when he left, uh, and can speculate on why. And I'm sure there'll be uh, investigations uh, that delve deeper into that. I mean, whether this is a big deal or not, I mean, it's a big deal if journalists and Democrats decide to make it a big deal, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is not our first rodeo with the Presidential <laughs> Records Act and the uh, you know importance of of document retention. Uh, it was the central issue of the 2016 election because Republicans decided to pretend to care a lot about Hillary Clinton's document retention policies and uh, journalists, I guess, pretended to believe them. And so there were, you know, tons and tons of front page stories uh, on a level that we're, we're just not seeing so far, uh, except uh, from the post, which is, is doing a lot of the initial reporting on this. Um, it is not consuming uh, political reporters' agendas uh, to the extent uh, that we saw during the 2016 election. Maybe that will change. Yeah. On that point, Philip, uh, the Post has been doing excellent work on this. And Eugene Robinson in his column this morning mentions that 
Republicans sent over 70 subpoenas about the 30,000 missing emails from, from Hillary. I mean, the outrage over Hillary's emails has, has not quite been echoed by Republican outrage over Donald Trump's missing documents, has it? No, that's, that's very true. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we are all cynical enough to recognize that we would not expect it to be either, right. You know, I mean, I think, I think again, we're we're very very much at the front end of this. I mean, it was it was not until March of 2015 that the New York Times first reported that Hillary Clinton had an email server. So it took you know 20 months before we got to the place where we, there was a lot of coverage of it. Uh, that's you know sort of overstating things to some extent, uh, but we're again we're at the front end of this thing. I do think it's important to remember uh, that this is in several ways importantly different uh, than the Hillary Clinton email thing. I'm actually writing about it this morning. You know this is uh, this is Hillary Clinton was running in 2015 as and through 2016 as the presumptive next president of the United States. She had really made you know she had presented herself as being an ex you know sort of the the most qualified person who ever run for the office. And right. so this really spoke to her judgment. And I think that's one of the reasons they got as much traction as it did. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the campaign was entirely reshaped by the announcement right at the end of the campaign that they were reopening the investigation for, I think, what appear to be now spurious reasons, which, you know, that that by itself deserves some critique. But I think there are actual tangible differences between these two situations that makes a one-to-one comparison probably not that useful. Right. Oh, okay. Well, I can't resist, uh, Maya, that there is now a new wrinkle to this uh, part of the story, thanks to Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, uh, who indicated in doing the research for her book, The Confidence Man, that she discovered um, something else that was going on maybe at the White House. Here is Maggie Haberman uh, talking yesterday about uh, her discovery from White House uh, staffers. As I was reporting out this book, um, I learned that staff in the White House residence would periodically find the, the toilet clogged. The engineer would have to come and, and fix it. And what the engineer would find would be wads of clumped up wet printed paper. They believe that he had thrown down the toilet. Donald Trump, of course, denies that he flushed important documents down the toilet. <laughs> my, is this the, do, do we call this the smoking gun? I don't know. I guess my question is, was there not a shredder available? Um, uh, 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 <laughs> like, is there, were, there, were there any other options here? I mean, but again, also gets at just how insidious this could be. Like, just what what are you flushing down the toilet? What is the... What is the the psychology behind this that this document could be so incriminating or important important or you know negative if if certain eyes were to see it that it it's not going to be burned it's not going to be shredded no it's going to be wadded up and flushed down the toilet um, and also I I I I think that's great reporting um, <laughs> to have been able to get that detail in the book. Um, and, and my, again, my question is just, what do we do with this information now? How are we going to act on this? Because it all is, it all is pointing to, at least in my eyes, something that is much bigger and much darker, maybe than we even, than we, than we thought, uh, previously. So Matt, uh, you raised the, um, uh, the echo of Hillary Clinton when it comes to the documents. When we talk about the phone records, (laughs) Here are the echoes of Rosemary Woods, right? Uh, missing, missing phone records from the White House, missing records, the blank spot on the Nixon Nixon tapes. But these were phone records 
from the morning of January 6, where there's no record of any calls made for several hours between Donald Trump and anybody outside the White House. Yeah, that certainly seems super convenient. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it's really By the way, a question. And we, know, we know that he talked to Kevin McCarthy. We know he talked to Jim Jordan. He was on the phone. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think you know, the question here is like whether the American public is willing to say, okay, he and Republican leaders and Democratic leaders and journalists are, are willing to say, well, well, he, I guess he, he covered up the crimes really, really well. There's just nothing we can do about this. I, I don't, I, I, in some cases, I think that will happen. In some cases, I think that they will not, but like, it, it, it's, it's, you don't have to go too far to like figure out why things like this happened. Um, that there's not a lot of good explanations for why there would be a mysterious gap in phone records or why uh, uh, documents might end up in uh, the toilet. Like the, these are, this is, this is the question is, is what was trying to be covered up? Uh, not whether there was an attempt to cover something up. Well, that, Philip, gets me to, I, I must say, the one thing that stopped me in my tracks about this was when I heard that the archives, National Archives, have asked the Department of Justice to look into um, the mishandling of documents uh, for possible criminal offenses. I mean, the National Archives getting involved at this level, uh, I find that, Stunning. Have we ever, ever seen anything like like that? The National Archives taking an active role in something like this. Uh, I, I can't speak to whether or not the National Archives have referred a, a situation like this to investigation before. We certainly know that there have been incidents in which people have absconded with classified material and then faced uh, sanction. Uh, right. Sandy Berger, who worked in the Clinton White House, yep, uh, had taken a bunch of documents and mm-hmm. ended up having to pay a fine and do community service. So, so we know that there have been repercussions in the past for this sort of activity. Uh, you know, again, the 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 idea here being that the National Archives is not a law enforcement agency. Obviously, it would be a weird thing to add to its purview. Uh, so it's saying to the you know DOJ, hey, we're not sure here necessarily that the crimes were broken. So why don't you take a look? Uh, you know, again, not just to be a broken record, but a reminder that we are very much at the beginning of this whole thing. Yeah, it certainly does raise things to a, a new level. Uh, and somebody else raised things to a new level this week, Maya. Uh, this is uh, a week ago now, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it on the roundtable. It happened last Friday afternoon after our last roundtable, uh, where former Vice President Mike Pence, speaking to the Federalist Society uh, in Miami, I believe, in Florida, certainly, um, really, um, for the first time, put a lot of distance between himself uh, even more distance, I should say, between himself and Donald Trump when it comes to Mike Pence's uh, abilities to overturn the election or power to overturn the election on January 6th. Here is the former vice president. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But president Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. And frankly, there is no idea more on american and the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Uh, is that his sort of unofficial declaration for presidency in 2024? Uh, depending on who you are talking to um, <laughs> is, is really the answer that you'll get. I think some people saw uh, the former vice president's speech and said, this is the moment that 
uh, that Pence declared his candidacy for 2024. And then a lot of people also watched that and said, this is the moment that Pence is no longer a Republican. I think that you have, and you see in, in this, in his speech, um, in the Republican National Committee censure of, of Cheney and Kissinger, you have now very clearly, and we have for a while, but it's it's just kind of being laid very bare, these two camps in the Republican Party. Those who believe the election was stolen from, pres- from former President Trump, who don't have any trust in election systems, and also who don't quite understand how all of this works. I think that's a big part of this too. Um, and those who believe that you just have to follow the rules and that this is what happens when you lose an election. And so I interpret this, um, th- I guess, through that lens and and also an understanding that I, I think Pence obviously had to put some distance between himself and the former president. But I think also, again, like, um, we learned a lot about election systems and how they work. And I think a lot of voters did too, um, whether they believe they are just or not. And especially what you see in sort of this pushback uh, in, in emails and statements from Trump, you get the sense that maybe he did not quite understand all of the systems in place that would make it very difficult uh, to to essentially steal an election or, or delegitimize one. And Pence's unwillingness uh, to go through all those motions immediately makes him an enemy. When in fact, there are just a lot of different steps that you have to take, I think. And um, I mean, in in short, you know, I don't know what what the future holds for the former vice president, but it's very clear that he's kind of put himself very solidly in the column with folks who absolutely are conservatives, but um, are election truthers as well. Yeah, uh, and Matt, uh, Maya referred to the second big, uh, whatever, bombshell, if you will, from the Republican Party last weekend, which was uh, out in Salt Lake City, where the Republican National Committee adopted this motion uh, censuring uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for daring be part of an investigation into what they labeled famously legitimate political uh, discourse. Where does this leave the Republican Party looking at what their message is, their message again, Matt, in 2022? Well, I think it leaves them sort of stuck between uh, their uh, base voters and uh, sort of basic credibility and and whether or not uh, they care about that. I think we're seeing something similar play out on Fox News where uh, the major primetime hosts just didn't discuss at all, either uh, the Pence speech or that legitimate uh, political uh, discourse uh, question, Um, you know, they are stuck between wanting to be able to appeal to uh, a diverse set of advertisers and wanting to keep uh, Trump and their viewers from getting angry at them. And so the easiest thing to do is stay as quiet as they can as long as they can. Now, that's much more difficult for Republican political leaders because Trump has a habit of putting them to the test um, in a way that makes it harder for them to uh, squirrel away. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we'll we'll see where that goes. Right. Uh, Well, you know, you've got to really do something outrageous to get Mitch McConnell to comment publicly and disagree with you about anything if you're a Republican. But the RNC managed to do that. Uh, Here is the Republican Senate leader's response to the RNC resolution. 
Well, let me give you my view of what happened January the 6th. And we're all, we're here. We're here. We, we, we saw what happened. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election. So, Philip, I have to ask, these are not dumb people on the RNC. Why did they do this? They must have debated it. They certainly read it. They discussed it ahead of time. And they came out with this phrase, legitimate political discourse. Uh, The reporting I've seen suggests that they did not do a lot of discussion before. Uh There's not a lot of time for them to actually have read this document. I think that the the explanation that we've heard from them, essentially from the outset, is that when they're talking about legitimate political discourse, this was incredibly sloppy phrasing that was trying to defend those people who'd been swept up in the January 6th committee subpoenas who were not directly related to the events at the Capitol that day. So there was this woman who was a friend of the chair of the Republican Party uh, who had been subpoenaed because she'd been one of these alternate electors. That's not centered on January 6th necessarily, uh, but there was some consternation apparently by Ronald McDaniel that, that she had been subpoenaed by the committee. And therefore they were trying to say that even those people who were, who were part of legitimate political discourse uh, were engaged in this, you know, who were swept up in the, in the subpoenaing. I think that, I think that, the idea that this was sloppily put together by a diehard Trump ally, David Bossie, and that it was poorly phrased, I think that's very defensible based on everything else that we know about the, the whole situation. Yeah, because they, they may have had that distinction. She may have Rona McDaniel in mind. That's not what the document says. That's right. Right. Not not at all. Um, well, so much more happening this week. Uh, but let's take a quick break and then we'll get to the rest of the news of the week with today's panelists here on today's roundtable. Uh, Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America, Philip Bump from The Washington Post, Maya King from Politico. And today's roundtable here on the Bell Press Pod is brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. Uh, they're the good men and women who staff us on our great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's and the rest at our big grocery chains, uh, Safeway and Whole Foods and the others. Uh, they staff our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants across the country, always on the front lines, serving us, serving America. We salute the good members of the UFCW, thank them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. 
I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Maya King joins us from Politico, national political reporter, Philip Bump, national correspondent for the Washington Post, and Matt Gertz, a senior fellow at Media Matters for America. Uh, Matt, I want to start with you, and I've got to ask you um, something that's not really, well, I guess everything's political, right? But what are we to make of this Canadian truckers' strike? Um, What's behind it? Who's behind it? And how big is it going to get? I think it's uh, a pretty big deal. I mean, we've seen uh, these Canadian truckers who uh, originally... Um, were uh, th- their goal was to try to overturn a uh, recently imposed uh, regulation that required them to either be uh, vaccinated or to quarantine when they returned from the United States, um, but now has, has sort of sprawled to a, a call to repeal all mandates. And we've seen uh, those uh, protesters now shut down the U.S.-Canadian uh, border at partic- particular entry points. We've seen uh, some fairly uh, severe supply chain issues. Um, you know, there's, uh, they um, sort of shut down downtown Ottawa, um, causing a state of emergency there. Um, I, I think we are likely to see something similar in the United States in the not too distant future. Uh, Fox News uh, and uh, the rest of the right media has been extremely excited about these protests, uh, the uh, coverage through uh, Wednesday uh, had totaled eight hours and forty-three minutes, uh, largely on uh, the primetime shows where they were uh, treating uh, these uh, truckers as heroes. Um, and they're starting to encourage similar actions uh, in the United States. Um, and so I think this started as an international news story, but will become a domestic one very shortly. It does, Philip, seem like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? I mean, uh, there are reports too, that Matt referenced to um, some of the pe- some of the people, some of the organizations involved in January six appear to be involved in supporting and egging on the trucker strike. Yeah, I think that there was a real grassroots emergence of this thing in Canada before America was paying a lot of attention to it. Mm -hmm. And that there was this, you know, obviously all of us are familiar with the backlash to some of the mandates and recommendations that have been made by our government about the vaccines and that that some Canadian truckers took exception to Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, implementation of, of a mandate for them. So I think that there was a real energy there that that helped create this thing that now the political right, not just in the United States, but globally sees as advantageous and sees this as a mechanism for uh, both amplifying their concerns and in a lot of occasions just sort of, you know, mucking up the works. Right. And so we see these sorts of, you know, obviously Fox News is the one with the largest audience, but there's a lot of discussion and, and, and activism on 
the right with the same sort of, and I think this is important, with the same sort of institutional support we saw prior to January 6th. We're seeing yeah. a lot of, for example, Republican legislators saying, hey, GoFundMe, you can't turn off the taps on this this fundraising effort here. We're going to investigate you. I mean, the same sort of trying to ally with the far right that is being most vocal about this from the more centrist or more establishment parts of the Republican Party that we saw in the lead up to January 6th as well. Right. Uh, and there seems almost to be uh, an excitement over the fact that this could spread into the United States and could block traffic around the Super Bowl this Sunday, right? Um, uh, watching the coverage, it, it looks to me like they're almost saying, we hope this happens because that'll give us a big story to cover. Uh, I want to move on for a second. Maya, the president uh, gave an interview last night with uh, Lester Holt on NBC News. Part of that will be played uh at the halftime for the Super Bowl, uh, as is always done, uh, become a tradition in this country. But he he was asked by Lester Holt about uh, how he's doing with the Supreme his his search for Supreme Court nominee to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, and he said um, made a little news saying that he's done a deep dive on four candidates. What's going on, Maya? And what's it look like? Who's the pick? Well, I I think uh, if you ask Jim Clyburn, the pick is certainly um, Childs. She's really been the the front runner, I think, in 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 those circles. But at the same time, we know um, that that President Biden is is not the type of president who wants to be told what to do or who to pick. Um, I, I'm I'm interested in sort of what's swirling around a lot of these these uh, these four these four women. We know that they're all immensely qualified and and you know, that likely um, there will not be too much of an issue actually um, getting them on the court, how, or one of them, excuse me. But what you're also seeing is sort of this dance, especially among Senate Republicans on how to characterize the fact that uh, President Biden has committed to uh, picking a black woman. Um, there was a lot of pushback to a few talking points that have described that commitment as affirmative action. At the same time, of course, that's been another thing to motivate and rile up the Republican base. Mm -hmm. And you also see as well on the Hill, this league, not just on the Hill even now, um, and just in politics, of, of Black women and Black women political leaders who have really, really strategized and organized much in the same way that we saw um, in, in 2020 around uh, naming Kamala Harris vice president. Now it's let's make sure that the, the talking points around this woman don't delve into anything too really explicitly racist that could get get away from the news of this historic pick. And also, you know, these women have been very clear that they don't necessarily have a specific uh, woman in mind, but that they do want certain uh, certain qualities, you know, a commitment to to criminal justice, um, obviously someone who is more more liberal minded. They're, I think, really, really wary of, and they know that this this is unlikely to happen, but they do look at uh, folks like Clarence Thomas, who absolutely represent the black community in that he is black, but does not necessarily represent black voters, black communities' interests um, in his decisions on the court. And so it's, it's really been interesting for me to observe all of these different things happening around this pick. And now it's just going to get even more um, exciting, I guess, now that Biden has said he has, he's narrowed it down um, to four, and we know that, that his deadline comes uh, at the end of this month. So, so we will see. 
But let me follow through with that, Maya, with you for just a sec, because the president did say that the person he's looking at will be somebody, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, right? Just like Stephen Breyer, like, you know, the same uh, approach to the court that Stephen Breyer had in trying to seek consensus. Is that a hint about which <laughs> which direction he might be heading? I don't think so. I mean, okay. if it could it could be if you if you're really reading the tea leaves and and you really have someone in mind. Like I think I think that Childs does has been represented as a consensus builder, but I think that because of Biden's leadership style and just because of his talking points around bipartisanship and consensus building, it does make a lot of sense that he would want um, that same, I guess, model of justice, regardless of of, of what their background is. Um, and, it, and it is going to be important, especially on this court with, with just, a, I mean, whoever takes this role is, <laughs> they have their work cut out for them uh, in the, in the coming months and years with the, with the number of high profile cases kind of coming down the pike now. So, Matt, from a media standpoint, the question I had watching the interview last night, uh, as much as they played on the NBC News, well, I mean, this was wide open. Biden sat down with Lester Holt for over half an hour, and they touched on everything. You know, inflation, Supreme Court, Ukraine, go down COVID, go down the list. Um, why did Biden do this? Why would Biden do this? Is this part of a new White House media strategy, I guess I'm asking, Matt? as the president sort of promised in his news conference a couple of weeks ago, to get out there more, to get the message out there more? Well, I mean, it's traditional for the president to be interviewed by uh, someone from uh, the network uh, that uh, hosts uh, the Super Bowl. Yeah, but and, usually and it's just a short little, short little funny kind of, not funny maybe, but, you know, pro, pro forma sort of, you know, slot that they slip into that halftime show. This is yeah, a I mean, major I, I interview. So. I, I hope so. I, I hope he uh, gets out and makes his case uh, to the American people uh, more often. I, I think he is a, a good messenger for his uh, values and for his policies. And uh, the more that he can uh, put that out there, the, the better off he'll be. So, uh, Philip, I can't resist this either. I know maybe people are making too much of this, but it was announced this week that former uh, presidential candidate, former first lady, former New York Senator Hillary Clinton is coming to give a major address to the New York Democratic Party next week. You know, there's there has been a lot of talk about Hillary still taking a look at 2024. Are we reading too much into this? <laughs> I don't know how to say this on your own show, Will. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I look, yeah. I don't understand why Hillary Clinton would want to reinject her into the fray at this point. I mean, I think that that she ran in 20, 2008, she ran in 2016. I, I, I'd be very skeptical if she ran again. I know there are a lot of very, there are a lot of people in the Democratic establishment who have very strong relationships with the Clintons. And so I think would be very enthusiastic about seeing her run or seeing, you know, somehow, you know, Chelsea, whoever it happens to be, you know, getting sort of having that door reopen. I just, I, I think it's incredibly unlikely, uh, you know, especially because Joe Biden is still the incumbent president, right? And so I think it's, it would also be very strange for Hillary Clinton to challenge him in a primary. I, I just, it's, I, I think we may be overreading this, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in terms of people trying to maybe make a comeback, Sarah Palin uh, is back this week, uh, back in the news and back to stirring things up. 
uh, Matt, she is suing um, the New York Times for defamation. Uh, what's that look like and how'd she do on the witness stand? Yeah, I mean, so this dates back to an editorial written uh, several years ago. Uh, it, it um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, uh, but the, the gist of it is that uh, she thought that it unfairly portrayed her as um, encouraging uh, some political violence. Uh, the, the Gabby Gifford shooting. Yes, you know, right. yes. Um, and so, you know, it's the sort of thing where uh, the Times definitely screwed up um, the case for actual malice. The the standards you need to reach this are, are pretty, pretty high. Uh, and I, I think that what basically has come out of this case so far is that uh, James Bennett, the uh, editorial page editor, uh, was trying to do a lot of things very, very quickly uh, and uh, without uh, as much attention to detail as one might hope from someone in that situation and inserted some false statements into someone else's uh, editorial copy. Um, and uh, so that's, that's not great. Uh, that, that's a bad thing to do. Um, but I think it's unlikely that they're going to get much in the way of damages out of the New York Times on this one. Can, can I offer a thought here? Please. Absolutely. I, I just think it's, it's really worth remembering that there is a very concerted effort on the political right to try and, uh, uh, to try and undercut some of the protections that the press has. We Absolutely. saw this with right. Peter Thiel's efforts against Gawker several years ago that ended up being successful and essentially shutting that site down. There very much is a consistent effort to try and put this sort of pressure on uh, uh, legitimate media institutions. In part, you know, part of it's working the rest, which has been going on a long time, but part of it really is to try and change what the rules actually are. And I think that's the thing that a lot of journalists right now are really keeping their eye on. Uh, which Donald Trump um, said was one of his goals, right? Right, um, exactly. Right. And made that a goal. Uh, and I guess the final um, media matter uh, of this week, Maya, um, surrounds Joe Rogan, uh, not only putting on, on the air on his podcast of uh, people who uh, tell all kinds of lies about COVID uh, and a lot of untruths and misrepresentations, uh, but also... Um, surfaced uh, his use of um, racist slurs repeatedly uh, on his podcast. But Spotify says basically, "My so what? You know, he makes us a lot of money. We're going to keep him on the air. Um, no suspension, no discipline, disciplinary action at all. Um, too big to fail, I guess, Maya, is that it? Or just too too popular. Um, I mean, he obviously has has a following and Spotify pays him way more money than they do almost any other artist or, or person on this platform. And they see it as a return on investment. Um, but, you know, there's there's not much I can say about about Rogan because it's just um, it's hurtful and it's dangerous, but it's also a little dumb. You know what? he like the fact that he has this huge platform and can put all of this out there. Um, and I, I think that it is telling the, the, the number of, of artists that you see also pulling their music mm -hmm. from the platform, not just because it speaks to um, the outrage, but the fact that that Spotify has pretty much been unbothered by that um, and, and plans to continue 
playing Rogan's or, you know, having Rogan post his content. So um, it yeah. is unfortunate <laughs> to, to put to say the least. Um, right. And, and I, I hope that, that some people learn some lessons here, particularly people who listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. Uh, also not surprising, but still pretty disgusting to hear, to see so many people uh, say, no, he should not apologize. No need for him to apologize. Right. Mm. Uh, I don't think most, a lot of other people would get that same level of um, pa- get a pass like Joe Rogan has been getting from so many people. All right. That kind of wraps up the news of the week. Great job, uh, panelists, Mike King, Philip Bump, and Matt Gertz. Um, but as we always do before we let you go, uh, there's got to be, there was, of course, one story, at least one story this week that really got your attention, stopped you in your tracks, made you think for a few seconds about it. Um, we call it the favorite story of the week. Matt Gertz, what caught your attention? Well, as regular listeners of this podcast know, <laughs> yes. I always uh, use uh, this as my opportunity to highlight my favorite uh, media conspiracy theory, which is that operatives from the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, and are using their reports on the rich to bring about revolution. Uh, this week, however... What caught my eye was uh, the comrades uh, providing a tale of victory, uh, not disgrace. Uh, the story is headlined, California Town Says Mountain Lions Don't Stop oh, Housing yes. After All. So the <laughs> Silicon Valley town of Woodside, uh, which uh, has an average uh, home value of about $4.5 million, attempted to uh, sidestep uh, the recently passed Senate Bill 9, which allows developers to build duplexes on single-family lots. The way they did this was they attempted to declare the entire town a mountain lion habitat, (laughs) Um, which, I mean, there are mountain lions in the area, but declaring the entire town uh, a mountain lion habitat is uh, pretty brazen. the state attorney general uh, agrees with me on that, said there's no valid basis to claim that the entire town of Woodside is a habitat for mountain lions. Land that is already developed with, for example, a single family home is not by definition <laughs> habitat. And so uh, with that, the uh, the town fathers re- uh, relented. Uh, they uh, said that they they would no longer attempt to uh, <laughs> declare the entire town a mountain lion habitat because it's intrinsically ridiculous, um, and they've instructed their staff to immediately begin accepting Senate Bill Nine applications. So, victory for the comrades! Thank you for your service. <laughs> I must say, I found that story uh, very funny because uh, we happen to uh, own a house in Marin County, uh, California. Uh, out on the coast, which, by the way, is, is, big is, a mountain lion habitat. (laughs) And we've seen them close to our property. But Woodside, I know well, is not, for sure. Um, Philip, Philip Bump, how about you? Uh, Somewhat less funny story. Uh, (laughs) There was a big brouhaha on right-wing media this week over the 
idea that the Biden administration is going to be providing crack pipes uh, to crack addicts in the United States. What? Uh, that was based on a story from the Washington Free Beacon, a uh, conservative outlet mm-hmm. uh, that was wrong, that, that, that was wrong in the details and wrong in its implications. Uh, but it was a sort of a fascinating window into this moment in right-wing culture broadly, but particularly right-wing media, in which there is no longer, you know, after the Civil Rights Act, the Republican Party made this very concerted effort to try and make its racial appeals implicit, right? That they they were, they're going to point to the, you know, the famous Lee Atwater quote from 1981 about, you know, how they're not going to talk about forced busing and things along those lines and talk about race issues in a different context. So they Mm -hmm. weren't being explicit in making those racial appeals. That's out the window in the Donald Trump Tucker Carlson era. And so we see this story from the Washington Free Beacon really being elevated as a way to appeal to the insecurities of white Americans very explicitly in the case of Tucker Carlson, who said that the Biden administration literally wanted to see white people die because it improved the Democrats' voting advantage. Just a really, really stark shift really demonstrated Mm -hmm. in this one story that, of course, on the merits was also wrong. Yeah, and another example of some of this just totally outrageous kind of stuff, right? Conspiratorial stuff that starts out on social media and then builds up to mainstream media. And pretty soon we're all talking about it. Very quickly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, How about Maya King, your favorite story? Yeah, I um, I actually have a, a media story as well. It's a really interesting profile in the New York Times about a young lady named uh, Rhonda Abdalaziz. She is the first black uh, TV news anchor in Iraq. Um, and she was found just like in a coffee shop one day talking um, and has been hired. And it's the first black uh, on-air talent in Iraq since um, in the post-Saddam Hussein era, which is, I guess, about Whoa. 20 years now. But uh, many believe that it act- she could be um, the first kind of in the in the TV station's history. Um, and it's really interesting because it gets into her story, but also um, the uh, experiences of black Iraqis that I was not familiar with whatsoever. Um, just a really, a really deep dive into their history, having come to Iraq, um, and, and kind of dealing with a lot of issues of representation. Um, and the fact that this young 25 year old woman who, um, I believe was an engineer is now their, (laughs) their, their on-air talent, um, says a lot about, about the gains, um, that that black Iraqis mm-hmm. are making. Um, so I just found it a really fascinating story. Um, definitely a story about about diaspora as well. Um, and a, a person now, a media a media person who I will uh, be following pretty uh, pretty closely. I hope. Yeah, that was a great positive uh, upbeat story. Glad that glad that you mentioned it. Well, for my favorite story, I must admit I don't think there's been a story like this for so long. We talked about it earlier. Uh, but I just can't get away from it. And that is uh, Donald Trump tearing up and flushing documents down the toilet. Uh, the reason it meant so much to me is as covering the White House, I remember, I think it was 2017, 2018 or whatever, Donald Trump um, went off on this tear. And I was wondering, what the hell is he talking about? You may remember uh, this famous complaint by Donald Trump at the time. Here he is. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. I'm wondering, what is he talking about? 
I don't flush my toilet 10, 15 times. Well, now we know what he was talking about, probably. He had to flush his toilet 10 or 15 times because he was filling it up with uh, documents, White House documents that he had ripped up, um, maybe even classified documents, who knows. Uh, Panelists, you will forgive me, uh, but I think this gives a whole new meaning to the word document dump. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there we go. Couldn't resist that. Hey, thank you all. Philip Bump, thanks so much for being back with us today. Maya King, uh, good to have you with us as well. Uh, And Matt Gertz, good to have you back. Uh, Now that your family has expanded and you've uh, added a son and uh, taken care of both of them, but you're back at work now. So here we are together again. Thank you, panelists. Thank you all for listening as well. On Tuesday, our next podcast, very interesting guest will report this week that uh, one of the organizations, some of the people rather behind the January 6th insurrection were Christian nationalists, the evangelicals taking a part in planning, organizing, and and actually being part of the crowd, uh, the, mobs, the mob on January 6th, Jack Jenkins, who is the national reporter for the Religion News Services, is going to tell us all about it in our next podcast. That's Tuesday. Meanwhile, have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves. And we'll see you Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>